Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Christ is the head of the church, and he's the head in both the sense that he is the leader of the church, he is the head in the sense of being the source of the body's functionality. So Christ is the head of the church. We can never forget that. The moment we forget that, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, in a message titled, Christ Risen and Exalted Above All. Now here's Pastor Brian. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23, we'll read them once again together today as we finish up this first chapter of Ephesians, verse 15, once again. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as we finish up this first chapter, we're going to focus in on verses 21 through 23. Having prayed that his readers would know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward those who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, Having prayed these things, Paul goes on to describe the exalted position God has given to his son. And there are several places in the New Testament where we have these, these beautiful descriptions of Christ and his exaltation. And the verses that we read here, they remind me somewhat of the verses in the second chapter of Philippians. And maybe you remember those verses there where Paul is talking about how God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, 
and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here in Ephesians 1, there in Philippians 2, over in Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, we have these just uh, what they would call these strong uh, Christological passages where there's just this this magnifying uh, of the glorified Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, you know, he's praying for us, but it's almost like at the end of, of the prayer, although I think we'll see that what he says is still connected to the prayer, it's almost like he just sort of goes on a bit of a diversion and he just gets caught up in the glory of Christ. He's talking about the, the great power that raised Christ from the dead. He's praying that we would know that power that's at work in us, that power that raised Christ from the dead. But then when he gets to, you know, Christ having been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father, he, he just goes on then to, you know, he's been placed over all the principalities, powers, mights, dominions, every name that is named, everything's been put under his feet. And it's like he just, you know, burst forth in this praise for the exalted Christ. So in verses 21 through 23 that I said we're going to focus on, there are four things that I want to draw to your attention. Number one, Christ is presently seated far above all other powers. Secondly, God has put all things under his feet. Thirdly, he is the head of the church. And then fourthly, he is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So looking at the first point, Christ is presently seated far above all other powers. Far above all other powers. And so Paul lists principalities, powers, mights, dominions. What is he referring to? He's referring to the powers that have existed, the powers that existed at the present time, the powers that would go into the future, the great empires that have ruled over the nations, the great rulers that have come and gone throughout history. He says Christ is over all of them. He's above all of them. But notice what Paul says. God has put all things under Christ's feet. I want you to notice the present tense. In our desire to see the kingdom come in all its fullness, which of course is a good desire, we sometimes fail though to realize that Christ is already on the throne and that all things have already been put under his feet. We can't forget that. We don't want to forget that we are battling from the vantage point of the captain of our salvation has already defeated his foes. It's already done. It's just a matter of time before this becomes visible. It's just a matter of time before it becomes manifested for all to see. But we who are trusting in Christ, we who are the servants of Christ, we need to remember that he's already got the victory. As he said, he already has all authority and all power. So when we go forth with the gospel, when we go forth with whatever endeavor it might be to see the work of God advanced, we need to remember that God has already put the enemies of Jesus under his feet. 
And it's only a matter of time before that is evident to all watching. It's only a matter of time. The victory is absolutely secured. He's won the victory. And it's just a matter of time before that becomes evident to all. So he's put all things under his feet. And then he says here that he has given him to be head over all things to the church. Christ is the head of the church. And he's the head in both the sense that he is the leader of the church. He is the head in the sense of being the source of the body's functionality. So Christ is the head of the church. We can never forget that. The moment we forget that, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. If we forget that and we start thinking that men are the head of the church, then trouble is not far down the road. You know, it was a sad day in the history of the church when people came up with the idea that we needed to have a head of the church on the earth. We'll set up his throne in Rome because Rome was the great world power. And, and that's, that's the idea behind the papacy is that the Pope is the head of the church. Well, he's not, thank God. No man is the head of the church, thank God. Christ is the head of the church. He's the leader of the church. And may we never forget that. And especially those of us who are in Christian leadership, may we never forget who is the head, who's the leader. He's the head of the church in the sense that he is the source of the body's functionality. So he's the head of the church in the sense that your head, my head, our brains are the source of our body's functionality. And so Paul reminds us that he is the head of the body, the church. And then he refers to this idea of the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. And Bible commentators are divided here as to what it means he is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Because apparently in the original language, it's difficult to get a a real absolute translation into English. So there's been differences of opinions. And let me give you the two primary ones. Some believe that this verse is saying that the body, the church, is the fullness of Christ, the head. So in other words, what the idea would be is that apart from the church, Christ would be incomplete. Now, that immediately sounds not right. But if you think about it, in the way that maybe Paul is intending that we think about it, it very well could be right. Now, it doesn't sound right to me if I think of it in terms of Christ's deity. Now, of course, Christ is God. And because he's God, he doesn't need need anything to fill him, right? Anything to complete him. He is complete as God. 
But on the other hand, if we think of him in his humanity, you could argue the case that a head without a body is incomplete. Just like a bridegroom without a bride is incomplete. And these are the pictures that are given to us throughout the scripture. So it could be, as, as wild as it might sound, it could be indeed what's being said here is that we are the fullness or we bring completion to Christ. Now, it sounds crazy. It sounds wild. But think about this. God has linked himself so intimately with humanity There's something there with this link between God and man, like there is no link with any other creature. Of course, none of the uh, animals have that kind of a link with God. And apparently, not even the angels have that kind of link with God. There's some unique connection between God and man. So if if you understand that, if you get a grip on that, and let me just remind you that the most unique connection is that God became a man. He didn't become an angel. He didn't become any other life form. He became a man. So if you think about it like that, then you could see how, yes, the the church, the body, fills or brings completion to Christ who is the head. Remember what Paul is wanting to do here. He's wanting us to understand that as it is with Christ, so it shall be with us. Just like sin and death could not hold Christ, neither can sin and death hold us. The dominion that sin once had over us, Jesus broke that by rising from the dead. The dominion that death has over us, Jesus broke that by rising from the dead. And so, as he was then exalted to the right hand of God, it shall also be the case with us who are his body. You see, that's where the connection comes back in, the body and the head. Everything that's happened to the head, as the head, he's the representative of the body. So everything that's happened to him will happen with us. And so here, in one sense, is the real point that Paul is making, the amazing point that he's reminding us of that we, we sort of know, but we don't often think enough about it, but what he's wanting to drive home to us is that there is a human being on the throne of the universe. See, that's what we forget sometimes. We rightfully think of Christ in his deity, right? We, we, we think of Christ as God, and that's right. He is God. He's God in the flesh, and we, we glory and even talking about that. I love to talk about the, the deity of Christ, the fact that God became a man. And, and we put that emphasis there, and it's a, it's a right place to emphasize. But sometimes in our emphasis of the deity of Christ, we forget the humanity of Christ. Yes, he's God, but he's God in human flesh. He's still in human flesh. And today on the throne of the universe sits a man. See, that's the radical thing. There's a man on the throne of the universe. This is how uh, God has linked himself to humanity. He became a man and he remains a man. He did not shed his humanity when he ascended back into heaven. No, he's a glorified man. And because he is a glorified man, 
That's the guarantee and the promise that we will also be glorified with him because we are connected to him in as much as the body is incomplete without the head and the head is incomplete without the body. We are one with him. So Paul, as he's praying that we might know the exceeding greatness of his power that he worked in Christ, I think he's also you know, asking that, that we would understand these things in a greater way. To know that just as Christ is exalted far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, that that is our destiny, that we, his body, the church, will rule and reign with him in that eternal kingdom. That's where things are headed. And practically, what does that do? Well, it gives me a ton of hope, doesn't it? If I really get a hold of it, it it fills my heart with joyful amazement. And also, practically, it causes me to want to not get ensnared in the things of this passing world and to give myself as much as possible to the Lord and to his kingdom, the kingdom that we now belong to, the kingdom that will one day manifest itself thoroughly and completely before all eyes. It's this very thing that the author of Hebrews was speaking about when he wrote these words in the second chapter, verses six through nine. Listen, quoting from the eighth Psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, of course, David wrote this originally, but the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, he's quoting it. And of course, David is right. You know, Lord, what is man? When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, Lord, what is man? Man man seems in some ways so insignificant, right? That's what the author is getting at. Man seems in some ways so insignificant, but in actuality, man is far from insignificant for the very reasons that I just gave because God became a man. But he goes on and he says, you put all things under his feet. And then he says, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So everything has been put under man. That's what the author is saying, going back to the psalm. But we don't see that, right? We, we see that man is, is still subject to other forces and other powers and things that are beyond our ability to conquer sin, death, those kinds of things. So he's put all things under him, but we don't yet see that. But what do we see? Here's what he says. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made for a brief time lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So you see, this is what the author is saying, and it it, uh, lines up with what Paul is talking about here. God has the most amazing future in store for man. You know, I I think of people today who are 
like, like the atheist, for example. You know, most atheists are um, also humanist. And what I mean by that is that they refuse to believe in God or put hope in God. Their hope is entirely in man. They believe in the power of man. They believe that man can someday uh, create a perfect world, a utopia. And I, I think, you know, it's so tragic because the atheistic humanists will never bring about the world they envision because it's an impossibility. Not only will they not bring about the world they envision, they will miss out on the world they wish would be because they won't submit themselves to the one who will bring about the kingdom. Jesus is going to bring about the kingdom. We do not yet see everything brought into harmony. We do not yet see man in his glorified state ruling over things as God intended. We don't see that yet, but we have the guarantee that it's going to come because we see Jesus. So you see, when we see Jesus, who was temporarily made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but now crowned with glory and honor, the point the author is making is this is where man is headed. And the eighth Psalm what is man that you are mindful of him and you've, you've given him dominion over this? That will be fulfilled in the future, but Jesus is the guarantee to us that it will indeed come to pass. And so since that is our future, since that is our destiny, and this is what Paul's getting at in, in his prayer, Lord, open the eyes of their heart. Lord, give them spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, when we get a hold of this stuff, when this becomes a reality to me, then everything else is secondary. Nothing matters really apart from the glory of Christ. And we live for him and for his glory, knowing that we are his body, he is the head, and one day we will be where he presently is because he's there as our representative, seated far above all the principalities and powers. And what is true of him now will be true of us later, but it also uh, impacts us today because that same victory that he displayed in rising from the dead over sin, death, and Satan is the victory that God gives to us through our faith in him today. So sin has no victory over you today. Death has no victory over you today. Satan has no victory over you today. That's the truth. Now, if in practice, sin is having a victory over you, it's not because it has a right to, it's simply because you're allowing it to do something that it has no right to do. Don't allow that any longer. Come into harmony with the head. When you're in sin, you're like a, a body that's, that's being cut off from the, the source and you reconnect with that source through repentance, and then the body comes back into harmony with the head, and everything then functions the way God wants it to. And when you have a healthy body, it's a good thing, right? When you're healthy spiritually, it's a good thing for you, and it's a good thing for everyone around us. This is who we really are, and so let's lay hold of it and live accordingly. 
the month of October, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. Gender identity, same-sex marriage, and women empowerment are among the biggest social issues of our time. But there's also a worldwide injustice of slavery that has found its way into our homes and into our pockets. The slavery of pornography. Multitudes of men and women today are in bondage and enslaved to pornography. So how can men and women be liberated? Well, in his book, The Death of Porn, Ray Ortland shares wise and biblical advice as a father to a son, reminding us of our royal identity because of our relationship with God through Christ. To learn about how the bondage of pornography can be broken, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. To order The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.